wild courage exists to galvanize a generation of men. The tools and courage to fight for what matters most. And tell the stories that are born in the redemption of lives and souls. Hey guys, welcome back or to the Wild Courage Podcast. Today, I'm in Emmett, Idaho, sitting down with my friend, Stephen Ammon. Almost blew it. <laughs> you got it. Um, so Stephen and I met a year ago? Uh, no, earlier this year. Oh, was it this yeah. year? I was just looking at, through your text to find your address again, and I think it was around February. Oh, okay. So not even yeah, a year. Uh-huh. It feels like it because we've been we've been to war together. Yes, we so, have. Um, thanks for driving out, and we've tried. This is our third try. Third time's the charm. Yeah, we had well, some technical difficulties, yeah. and the great thing is God's timing's never late, and never early. So yeah, we're right where we're supposed to be. My dad, my dad always used to say that God's always three days late and right on time. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So. Yeah, a good buddy of ours, Josh, um, had met you, and he's mm-hmm. like, oh, you guys need to go to lunch, or we need to go to lunch, and he yeah. couldn't make it, and yeah. we sat down, and... I went from four of us to two of us, and yeah, it was instant yeah, yeah connection, so... Yeah. Yeah, I remember we were staying outside the restaurant, getting ready to get in our cars, and we hugged each other, and we both said, I love you at the same time. Yeah. Like, it's, this would be weird if people knew the backstory that there wasn't one. <laughs> yeah. That was our first yeah. time being together. But yeah. um, so we just are fresh off of two weeks ago, our retreat, and Stephen yeah. always comes and helps us in a leadership role. and. So it's fun to get to sit yeah. down after get, we haven't got to spend any time together since then, yeah. but I'm still on kind of a, a high from that weekend. Yeah. It was, so it was so good. It's amazing. That was my second one. And by far, like it was powerful. Yeah. So I used to always say that we have no idea what we're doing and in some senses we don't, but we're kind of getting that retreat thing yeah. dialed in. I yeah. think it's definitely each one's the two I've been to out of the four, each has gotten better. For the guys. Yeah. Like they've dug deeper. They've got more healing. Like they made better connections. Like we were able to serve them better this last time than before. I think so too. Which was super cool. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. So and humbling. Put a bunch of servant leaders together in a room and let them serve people. Yeah. Something good's going to happen. Yeah. For sure. So that's all great. But today it's about you, brother. Come on. So who are you? Oh, I know that, you know, because we have tried this a few times, I know part of your story, but um, so you grew up in Illinois, right? So, yeah. So I was actually born in Lawton, Oklahoma. Um, My dad, um, he got out of the military there. So he had been in Vietnam. So he did his AI training there with the 1st of the 40th Battalion and went over and spent almost 12 months uh, right on the DMZ in Vietnam. Oh, dang. And came back and transitioned out and stayed there. And Were you were you born? So I was actually born afterwards. My sister was born. So <clears throat> it's a funny story. So he knew he was going to get drafted. So he went to the Air Force to enlist because... 
he knew he'd probably get drafted in the Marine Corps, the Army One, and they wouldn't take him because he was married. So he got drafted in the Army, and three months in country, he got a telegram from my mom saying that she was pregnant, uh, which would have kept him from going had they known prior before. to him leaving. Yeah, and so my sister was three months old when he got home. I can you imagine? No, just what those guys went through, like your dad, like getting a, a maybe a letter saying that you have a baby girl. Yeah, yeah, I can't. I like it'd take everything within me not to go AWOL. Yeah, the stakes just got a lot higher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's uh, my I got the privilege to go with my dad in 2008 to his first reunion from his battalion, and. Had I not experienced it, I don't know that if I'd have caught or grasped the connection that those men had for each other. They hadn't seen each other in 40-some years. Oh, my gosh. And they, like, were hugging and kissing each other <laughs> and tears flowing down faces. And it was an amazing experience to get to witness the the camaraderie and the bond that those guys created 40 years ago and had not talked to each other since. Well, if you think about it, I mean, there's nothing you can recreate. No, that's life or death. That that brings yeah. guys together, like yeah. facing that kind of adversity. Yeah, yeah. And so the funny thing was, I heard very little military talk before '08, and I was like in my mid 30s, um, and I heard more about his experience in Vietnam um, until he passed this past July in mm -hmm. those years. In the stories, it's like, it's no wonder he had PTSD. Yeah. yeah which they didn't even know was a thing yeah, back then. Yeah. Uh-uh. Nope. So, yeah. We're still trying to figure out that mess, huh? Oh, yes, we are. We're making, yeah. we're making huge strides. Yeah. So that's for sure. Now it's the stigma. There's help available. It's the stigma now that keeps people from leaning in. Yeah. And I think that, that kind of holds true with any kind of trauma though. Yeah. Addiction. Especially with men. Yes. Yeah, we men, our society tells us that we are supposed to like figure it out on our own, which is impossible. It is impossible. Yeah. Even Jesus had 12. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you, so do you even remember being in, how old were you when you moved? So, no. So, I was less than a year old when we moved to Illinois. So, that's where both my parents were from. They were born and raised there. Um, and so, all of our family was there. And so we moved back to uh, Decatur, Illinois, which is kind of the central part of the state. So we were about probably 30 minutes from my mom's parents and probably about, well, my my dad's parents lived right in Decatur. So they were really close. And how far is that from like Chicago? So probably about three hours south. Oh, so you're yeah, kind of quite a, out yeah. in the. Yeah, farm country. Like yeah. Cornfields for as far as you can see in every direction. So we're between Springfield, which is the capital and Champaign, which University of Illinois was at. We were halfway between the two of them. And what did your father do? So he, he got in the plumbing trade when he got home from Vietnam uh, in Oklahoma and then got in the union in Illinois, which unions were big back there for any sort of trades work. And so um, he, he got in the plumber's union and opened his own shop and worked for himself most of my growing up years. So, and it was very, very lean. I remember one year, I was think I was in high school and Decatur was a town of a hundred thousand. There were three new homes built in Decatur that year. 
Oh boy. And he did two of them. Yeah. So yeah, we, uh, we lived off the garden growing up in the summer. Like I remember one day he came home with a truckload of corn on the cob that we set and shucked and blanched and cut off and froze. And that's what we ate on all year. Yeah. You know, stuff like that growing yeah. up. So, but huge work ethic, you know, if there was work available, dad was out doing it. So did you just have the one older sister? Mm -hmm. Yep. So just the two of us. So, and my mom, um, she didn't work when we were younger. Um, but then as we started getting into school, she would take, find jobs where she could work during the school hours, but be there to drop us off and pick us up. Oh, nice. So there was a couple of attorneys that she worked for, um, just clerical type stuff. She worked for a bank for a while. So, yeah. So what was high school like for you? Um, so school was, so I went to public school the first few years and then our church. So I went, I grew up, so my parents were like third generation Nazarenes. So we went to a Nazarene church cause that's just what you did. Yep. It's like growing up in the mafia, you can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in eighth grade, in the middle of the year, um, I was, we, the church school was struggling. And so my parents in, um, all of their wisdom, which they only know what they know, right. Yep. Pulled me out in the middle of the year. There was probably 50 kids in the whole school, like K through eight and put me in the public eighth grade school. Oh, you were in the, I was in the Christian private school. Christian school. Oh, okay. And they pulled me out and put me in the private school that had about 700 kids in seventh and eighth grade. That's a culture shock. It was a culture shock, especially in the middle of the year. Um, so huge target, lots of bullying and getting picked on and stuff. And yeah, I actually just mentioned this to my mom probably within the last year. I was like, why did you do that? You know? Yeah. And she's like, I know she's like, we should never have done that. We should have like, let you finish out. So I did that. And then in high school, I went to another Christian school and it was much larger um, they had all the sports teams and stuff like that. So I played basketball my freshman year and then had an injury that, um, prevented me from playing for the next two years. So I played my senior year and some of those guys that I made connections, I mean, there was only nine in my graduating class. So I say it was much bigger, but it was still really small yeah, comparatively tiny. to stuff. Um, but yeah, like two years ago, a couple of my buddies that I went to school with came out and we spent a week out here in the mountains hanging out. Oh, nice. So still kept some of those connections from. Yeah. That is days. the cool part about the smaller school is yeah. you kind of have those friendships mm -hmm. that maybe last longer because yeah. it's not spread out right. over a whole bunch of dudes. Yeah. Yeah. So we were definitely like every weekend before every game, they were at my house, we'd hang out there and stuff. So yeah, I definitely made some really good connections. We vacationed together. Like my wife knows their wives and stuff. So yeah, that's so cool. I appreciate that part. Um, so part of my upbringing, um, has a lot to do with health issues. So my parents discovered very early on, probably within the first couple of years of life, that um, I had a bleeding disorder called hemophilia. So my blood doesn't co coagulate and clot the way somebody that doesn't have it does. So the kind of the normal process. 
Um, there's actually 13 proteins that create a clot and I'm missing one of the proteins mm. in the middle part of the clotting process. So it's not severe. Like if I cut myself, I'm just going to bleed out. So it'll start to clot, break down, then start to reclot, break down. So you recognize that when you get a cut or something or is it so, internal? No, it's, it's more something major. Um, so how they discovered it when I was little was every, I had fallen and busted the leader on my lip. And every time I would suck on my bottle, it would start bleeding again. Mm. And so that's how they kind of discovered it. And I had very, very few incidents with that growing up. Um, and I'd get like swollen joints and stuff like that where I'd like fall or something, um, but mostly internal. Um, in trying to think how many times I'd had factor. I'd had factor for teeth pulled a couple different times. Um, and then like I got the freshman year, I got a basketball injury. So I had to go in and get factor for that. I had internal bleeding in my stomach Dang. Um, from uh, catching a basketball in the gut. Um, and then I went to work with my dad and we were moving a cast iron tub up a flight of stairs. And I probably the straining from pulling probably didn't help the, the bruise internally. And so ended up in the hospital for like a week for that. So I was in and out of the hospital a lot growing up, either with um, asthma attacks or getting hurt and needing factor. What's factor? So factor. So back then it was a, a blood product that they would pull out of um, people that would donate blood and they would, in, they would spin out the clotting factor part that I needed mm. and they would inject that through an IV. So, um, in high school, I got teeth pulled for braces. And when I got my factor, um, it ended up being, uh, tainted with HIV. And so I didn't know that. So I, I got the factor when I was probably 15 or 16. So, and I didn't know that until I was probably 20 and, uh, found out through just a freak thing that happened at work and they sent me to a clinic and they're like, yeah, go get checked out. And it's proud of the policy that they had with their insurance company. Anytime you ran involved in an accident, you had to at least go to emergency care and just get a checkout to say that you were healthy. And so they drew your blood. So the doctor on call just happened to be a hematologist, <laughs> like no accidents. Right. Um, and so because she, that's her specialty was blood. She noticed blood in the urine. So she actually admitted me to the hospital. So I had hit my kidney on the door of the truck when I got hit. And, uh, so she kept me in the hospital overnight and she's like, I want to run this test um, to see if there's, um, that you have HIV. And I'm like, well, I haven't been sexually active, so I'm not worried about that. What, what year was that? So that was in like 89, 90. So, HIV is like oh, like Magic Johnson had just come out a couple of years before. Yeah, that. it's like, this is a new yeah. like nobody knew what nobody to, knew. Yeah, so nobody knew what to do with it, and everybody was scared to death of it. Oh yeah, like we are with anything we don't know anything yeah. about. Yeah, yep. So um, so anyway, so yeah, like a week. Because back then it took like weeks to get the test results back. Um, so. Like a week later, I was at work. Um, so I had got into the plumber's union by this time, uh, following dad's footsteps. Was working for a plumbing shop and like called at noon. It's like, hey, like 
you ever get those results back? And she's like, yeah, I want you and your parents to come in so we can talk about it. And I knew right then, like, okay, that's not good. No. And so, yeah, um, kind of checked out at that point. So you and your folks go down. Yeah. So we go down. Um, and my parents have always loved me and I've never questioned sure. that. And they've always done the best they knew how to do. You know, so, um, so we go down, we get the results. Um, I think we're all in shock. Like, so what does that mean? So she, it's the gal. Yeah. The the doctor. Yeah. She had us come in. So we go down, she talks to us and her and I actually built a relationship, um, like personal relationship out of that. So she never had kids and always wanted kids, I think. And so she kind of adopted me and my family and so we would like have her over for holidays like i had keys to her house and her cars and like i'd go over and do little projects at her house and stuff um but what we discovered through the process was well first let me back up yeah what what happened when she said look i got some news yeah so part of me shut down like i didn't know that then this is only retrospective after doing a lot of work like emotional healing over this. Um, so I just shut down and my parents went into fix it mode, I think, especially my dad. Um, and so like there was a pastor that I grew up with. So he flew him up from like the Southern part of the U S um, to come and talk to me and kind of like give me some sort of support, which he didn't know what to do either. Well, what are you, t- how old you were 20? Yeah. 20. Yeah. And they, Take in the little office. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. through all these blood transfusions. You've contracted HIV. And at this point. Because they're not testing. They're not testing. They were not. Te- yeah. Donors. There's a, there's a documentary called Bad Blood um, that goes through, like, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but um, Fauci was behind all of it. Um, but, yeah, the documentary highlights the just blatant disregard that the government like had and the knowledge they had at the time and just totally ignoring it over like, it, I want to say it was like a dollar 50 or two bucks for the, to test for the, to test the people to who test the giving people blood. that did donators. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you're 20 years old diagnosed with HIV positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and no, I mean, this is the biggest yeah. pandemic since. And no support network for even from the medical field. Yeah, they don't like know what none to of do. that's set up at that point. You know, in fact, people are still thinking, oh, if I'm around him and he touches me, I might get HIV. Well, yeah, that's the stigma that. Yeah. Yep. And so um, I and, went into hiding. Did, did, I mean, also it, it's either you're getting it from needles or homosexuality, yeah. right? And so, being a twenty year old kid, yeah, that like, liked girls that a liked, lot, <laughs> right? Like, just knowing yeah. that if you even tell anybody, oh yeah, they immediately the assumption is that you're gay, yeah, or you're doing drugs because yeah. that's the only two ways mm-hmm. you can, yeah, that that they think you can, right? Yeah, you can contract that's the culture it. at the time, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I had to do a lot of work around. So you just shut down. Yeah. 
Like in what way? Like this isn't happening or I'm not, I don't know. Ignoring it. Yeah. 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 This is not happening. So, so you got up, went to work the next day. Like, oh nothing. yeah. Yep. Got up, went to work. Um, started working much overtime. So my dad was working for a different shop than I was. And so they had a lot of commercial contracts. So restaurants, stuff like that. So it's like, sweet. That all has to be done at night. So I can go work during the day, take a nap, go work from, you know, 10 o'clock at night till three in the morning, four in the morning, sleep for a few hours and go back to work the next day. And and your parents through it all were trying their best to. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Like loving on me. Yeah, for sure. Console. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I turned 21. Game on. Game on. So I figured out a way to not have to think about dying, basically. Because at that alcohol. point, that oh, it was a death sentence. It's just a matter of time. But yeah. It, now, I, I'm ignorant on this a little mm-hmm. bit, but HIV is like the pre stages of AIDS, right? Correct. And once you have AIDS, it's game over. Yeah. Yeah. And is that just a what delineates the two time? Uh your blood counts. Yeah. So it's strictly a, a blood measurement. So I'm going to get to that. Um, so when I turned 21, I discovered, oh, alcohol helps numb all of the really bad feelings that you're feeling inside. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so, and up until this point, um, I'm going to back up again. So I think this important part when we have a story and we all have a story and we don't get to tell it, it's damaging to ourselves. So when my parents and I found out that I had HIV, we had all the family fly in from all over the country, East Coast and West Coast, um, really to say goodbye, I mean, was how I interpreted oh, it at that sh- time. Now, I still feel fine, but we know. And so what we would do is they would have them at the house. I would leave because I was still living with them at the time. And then after they told them and they had their reaction, then I would come back home. Because they didn't want you to see. Because they didn't want me to see the reaction, which I totally understand. Yeah. But they were probably the safest people to tell. Sure. So I end up getting engaged um, I think it was right before I found out, actually. I'm not sure about the timeline, but anyway, so so we fly to Oklahoma because that's where she was living at the time to tell her and her parents that I have HIV. You and your parents? Me and my parents. Because they're my yes. godparents, so they were my parents' best friend when they lived in Oklahoma. And we're still, like, even his daughters now, like, I'm... Like we talk every so often and his grandkids I'm connected with. So this is, this is like some kind of like uh, tour. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) that's a good way to look at it. I've never thought about it like that. People are flying in, you're, I mean, it's like. Yeah. We got to go around and tell everybody what's happening to Steven. And never thought about it. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And my parents were great. Like they went with me to to Oklahoma, like to tell your fiance yeah. and her folks. Yeah. yeah, they didn't have to, but they did because that's what good parents would do. Um, 
And so this is the first peel pill I'm telling. Okay. So we sit down at the dining room table and my girlfriend, fiance, um, when I tell her, she so screams. You tell her. So I tell her. But you guys aren't like having sex or anything. No. Mm -mm. She screams and runs out of the house. And then her father, my godfather, chases her out of the house. So, and you're sitting in our living room. And I, yeah. And I'm sitting there like, well, could this feels really, really bad. Can this be any worse? Because I, I would imagine that once you find out, like, you're, we're just set up to start feeling rejection oh, based on that yeah. diagnosis anyway. Absolutely. And then you're getting kind of proven right. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And to her credit, she composed herself, came back in. We like continued dating or, you know, the engagement until I decided that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And part of that probably was like subconsciously, like, why would I do that to her? Yeah. If you really love yeah. her, like. Yeah. I've what? never actually thought about that until just this moment. Huh. Well, there's probably something in like being the martyr, right? Like. Yeah. I, if I really care, what kind of life can we really have especially with not knowing yeah. what hiv even the long term right like we just knew it wasn't long back then yeah like your life expectancy short yeah was short yeah and so um did you feel a shift though from her did she pull oh, back she had to have yeah mm -hmm. and rightfully so absolutely yeah like what kind of future is there mm -hmm. with this guy yeah. And the, and it probably there was some probably like religious guilt tied into her sticking to She's it. A good Nazarene girl too, right? And yeah. her parents yeah. and yeah, like I'm just putting myself in her shoes for a minute, even of like, okay, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna give this a go. Yeah. But inside, she's probably like freaking, freaking out. out. Yeah, I'm sure it had to be overwhelming. You know, had to be. How long did did it go until you decided that? Um. I called it off probably within nine months. Yeah. But you're long distance, so it's not like yeah. you're seeing her very often. No, anyway. she had actually, so on the next summer break, she actually came and lived at our house um, and took some local courses. And that's when I was like, you know what? I don't think this is going to work. So <clears throat> no hard feelings. Sure. It wasn't like there was this big blow up. It's like, I just don't think this is like what it's going to be good for me yeah and there's all this weird in hindsight again like parental pressure probably of like yeah. this is a good girl good family yeah. like yeah 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 it took a while to to mend those wounds after the breakup for sure but then but, but, but then, we did yeah so, but, and then you turned 21 yeah so then i turned 21 um game on and started drinking so, and I discovered, uh, so started dating this girl, local girl, and she's like, Hey, there's this bar I want to go to that plays country music. They have a country band and they do dancing. And I'm like, I don't dance. And she's like, well, just go. And my dad was the one that's like, dude, you should take her. She wants to go. So we go. What, what's the drinking culture like in your house? Um, so I'm not that familiar with Nazarene. Yeah. So, well, in the Nazarene church, it, it was grape juice, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> used, mine, not wine. Yeah. Mine too. <laughs> so, um, but my dad, he grew up 
or I grew up with him. Like he would drink a six pack sometimes a night. Um, and he kind of hit it like, and it wasn't until I was in high school. So he quit drinking probably like fifth, sixth grade. Like I remember it when he did. And then when I got into high school, they would have like a bottle of wine with dinner or special occasion or something like that. And so it was, it was out in the open then. So it was much better example of being responsible with alcohol than it was the early years growing up for sure. Um, so when you, sorry, I keep no, interrupting. No, go when, ahead. When you start dating this local girl that wants you to take her dancing, mm -hmm. do you tell her? No. Yeah. I mean, how do you date? Like, like hell no. <laughs> yeah. How do you? Uh -huh. Okay. So, so, so I became a serial monogamist for a while. So meaning like as soon as it would start getting close or physical, I would sabotage the you relationship. Would bounce, yeah. yeah. I'd be like, I'm out. So, cause I was not going to feel that pain again. Yeah. And this is all subconscious. Like I didn't know oh, this until sure. I was like 40 years old. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. oh my gosh, I was self-destructing every relationship I had. Well, and we, I mean, easy to see why. Yeah. So we go to the bar a few times and I'm like, I've always loved country music. I mean, dad grew us up on Mel Tillis and, you know, yeah. those old guy, George Jones and all those guys. So I love country music. And I was like, oh my gosh, like there are people having fun here and there are beautiful women here. And so I became um, very, very uh, talented at dancing. Um, and every, a little, a little liquid uh, courage, oh, courage helps never a lot heard, in the yeah. dancing deal. Yeah. I mean, literally like everybody knew me there cause I lived there basically three or four nights, well, probably five or six nights a week. Pretty much if they were open, I was there and I was still working during that time. But as the drinking kicked up, um, the work dropped off. And so I'm lucky I didn't get kicked out of the union. So I look back at my last apprenticeship year. So there's a five-year apprenticeship program. And uh, I looked at my pay stubs after I got sober and realized what I was doing to myself. And I averaged two and a half days a week. As an apprentice, do, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Do you think that it was because you had all these medical issues? Did you? No, they didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know. No. I could see if they knew that, maybe they'd keep you around. Yeah, but no. the fact that. So the only thing I can. Well. Besides God intervening, um, my dad was a UA member, so that probably helped. And the shop that I worked for, they had like 300 plumbers on their books. So it was huge shop. So it was easy to kind of maybe so, hide. Yeah. And your drinking, was it like blackout, get drunk every night? <clears throat> Pretty much, yeah. 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 And drive home, which oh, yeah. is really stupid. I wrecked, I wrecked six cars in nine months. Um, only one of them was my car which brings a whole nother set of <laughs> problems and liabilities on top of it. Did, did your folks have any idea what was going on? I mean, they knew like they had to know at some level that like, he's like, cause I was still living at home for part of that. Oh, yeah. And then I moved out cause I didn't want them to have to answer or for them to see what I was doing really. Yeah. Um, the whole martyr thing again, you know, like, um, so yeah, I totaled one car. I should like, and walked away from thrown, it. Thrown out. Yeah. It was a T-top Camaro and it looked like somebody had taken both bumpers and just scrunched it together and twisted it. Dang. Like 
every piece of glass was broken. T-tops were half blocked down the road, like blood everywhere. My roommate was with me. We'd both been drinking all afternoon. Um, he got thrown into the driver's seat. I got thrown out of the car, like wrapped it around a tree. How did you not go to jail? Like my sister jokes that I have a whole legion of guardian angels. <laughs> She's like, you don't have one or two. Um, like literally a cop helped us clean out all of the stuff out of the car and drove us to our apartment. And literally I, we had been at the bar for like four hours drinking pitchers and throwing darts. Yeah. That wouldn't uh, happen no, today. There, no, no way. Uh, uh Yeah. There's no explanation for it. Even back then. I mean, we were living in a suburb of Chicago and yeah. Dang. Yeah. It was a miracle. So it was, it was catching up with you. It was definitely catching up with me. Yeah. So, and then and it, do you feel like at this point you're, you're still just like, Oh, I'm not dealing with oblivious. I'm not taking one single med. Like I had a whole cocktail of meds. I was supposed to be taking. I'm not taking meds. I've got an apartment with me and my roommate. Like we're dancing and drinking every night. Like, on the weekends, we're at the bar. I'm like writing bad checks, knowing they're bad to have money to drink. Oh yeah. Like living on box of cereal for two or three days. Like, yeah, it was bad. I remember those days of like, when you live in small towns in Wyoming, they let you have a bar tab. <laughs> Oops. And then <laughs> fortunately there was two different bars in that little town because I'd get so upside down in one of them. I couldn't go yeah, show my show face there for a while. <laughs> yeah. They, they definitely didn't let you do that in Chicago. But yeah. My bar tab was higher than my monthly salary. Yeah. 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 So I figured out that this was back, you know, when things weren't electronic. Um, so you could write a check to the grocery store for cash. cash over. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. I used to do that yeah. too. So my, uh, my checking account was once I kind of, I hit rock bottom and I'll get into that. But when I did, I went to the bank to clean up my disaster and it was thousands and thousands of dollars. In the red. In the red. Yeah. yeah. And dad's like, you know, they could take you to jail. And that's like crap, crapping my pants, walking into the bank, like to figure it out. And of course, I think they were just happy that I came to make it right. And so, so yeah, I got those, to work to pay it all back. Those times have changed also. Oh that. yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you're, you're living in a suburb of Chicago, yeah. which lots of pretty girls. Yep. Yeah. Lots of bars. Lots of bars. So we, we'd go down like a bunch of us would get up like on the weekends and in our hats and boots and all that. And we'd go down town Chicago to rush street and like cause havoc, which is saying something yeah. when you're in Chicago. But yeah, it, there was a couple times it got very dangerous, um, where I believe there was guardian angels there. We probably wouldn't have made it out. A couple of incidents and some alleys trying to skirt from one bar to the next. And yeah. Yeah. I experienced that in Chicago once too. Yeah. Same thing. I got off the E train mm -hmm. the L. in Hall in Harlem. Okay. Oh, instead geez. of the four exits later, there was five of us in cowboy hats. Not good. No, this yeah. van, this van rolled up, this shady van rolled up and we're literally walking down an alley. Like 
we're, this is the stupidest thing we've ever done. We yeah. got off the wrong exit. And <clears throat> this van pulls up. It's like in the movies. The sliding door slides open, and there's all these Mexican dudes with bandanas, and <laughs> smoke, like, rolls out when they, it's like a music video. <laughs> and they go, and we just freeze, right? We're paralyzed. And this guy leans out after he opens the deal at the sliding door. And he's like, hey, are you guys with the band? And we're like, yep, we're just yep. going around the corner. And he's like, and he said something really yeah. cool and half Spanish. <laughs> and we're like, oh, oh, yeah. So we thought we were going to die. <laughs> yeah. I had that whole same thing happen. Uh, <laughs> got into it with a couple of Chinese guys. And like car pulled up and like 12 of them rolled out of the car and we're like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> There's like five of us and like 14 of them. And they have and nunchucks. Like, yes. And they probably, yeah. Oh, I know one of them had a gun. Oh boy. Yeah. So yeah, my buddy was a smooth talker and we talked our way back down the alley backwards. Yeah. yeah Chicago is not a town you no. want to mess around in. Yeah. And it, 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 so I went to a year of college out of high school in, um, Bourbonnet, which is south of Chicago, about an hour, hour and a half. And so we used to go up there all the time on the weekends. And I remember one time we were going home after we'd been out and we weren't drinking at that time. This was before all of my chaos. We'd just go up there to have fun. And we were driving back, so south, and we ended up in the south projects. And like we pull in a gas station to get directions. And this old black guy's like, what are you doing here? He's like, I want you to get on this road and I don't want you to stop at any red lights. Get out of here. Get out of here. And it's like done out. Yeah. So yeah, in Chicago, you can be in a real, well, any big cities like that, yeah. just a few blocks and you can be in a wrong territory, yeah, wrong territory for sure. So, um, one funny story. So, you know, I would self-destruct my relationships. So I was dating a local girl and I'd met this girl at the bar that we started dating at the same time. And cause I was living up by the bar now. So the, the local girl was from where I used to live with my parents, which is about an hour South of the bar, uh, which I used to drive every night to go dance and then drive home an hour drunk. Yeah. That's why I had so many accidents. Yeah. Like I'd hit curbs and blow tires and I'd just keep driving on the flat the rest of the way home. Um, So anyway, so, so I invite mom and dad up to meet this girl. So the local girl has been calling me, trying to get a hold of me and I'm like not answering my cell phone. And it was a bag phone. So I can tell you back how long ago that was. And um, so she calls my parents' house. My dad answers, which hardly ever answers the home phone. And he's like, oh, we're going to a meeting for dinner tonight. You should ride up with us. So here I am sitting with this girl she at thought, the table. Your folks thought it was her. No, my dad knew. Oh, he was oh. He was totally like, I'm going to see what you do now, son. Oh, dang. So here are the three of them walk in and me and this girl are sitting at the table. <laughs> and he's behind all of them just <laughs> grinning from ear oh, to dude. ear. And um, it's like, oh, everybody sit down have a... <laughs> Let's get the menus and see what we're going to have for dinner. Obviously, the girl that was there with me got up and left. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but, that's awesome. Yeah. So Good on your dad. Yeah, uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. He uh, he definitely was a man of integrity, and his word was everything. And so he's like, you want to play this game with girls? All right. Let's go. I'm going to bring it to front and center. So That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So what what was your bottom in that season? Um, so my bottom was um, drinking all the time, carousing. Um, even got into some drugs. Um, not a lot, thank goodness. I really didn't like them, um, which I think is a huge blessing. Because um, with my personality, it would probably it would have been over the top. Um, so I wake up one morning and like my head hurts worse than anything I've ever experienced in my life. More than just hangover. Oh yeah. And I like hangovers for me were usually just like slight headache and tired. And this was like somebody had a knife in the base of my neck. Um, so parents end up taking me to, uh, the doctor. Uh, we immediately go to the hospital. They can't figure out what's going on. So I get admitted. Um, and they, they kind of thought they might know what it was, but they weren't sure. And they had done no real testing. So they kind of thought it might be spinal meningitis. Um, and I'd already had pneumococcal pneumonia earlier that winter, which is a very, very dangerous type of pneumonia, um, kills people. That's usually what people have if they die from pneumonia mm. is the pneumococcal pneumonia. Like my temp was 104. Yikes. So like, yeah, I couldn't stop shaking. So, uh, so anyway, so a couple months later, then this headache starts. So we go in, um, and that was a whole God thing too. Like the, they got me somewhat stable. Um, I'd lost like tons of weight. I'm like, and you can't afford to lose weight. No, I'm six, like, well, I just went to the doctor. I'm s s just over six foot and weigh like 170 pounds. So back then I was six, two and probably didn't weigh quite that much. Um, and so they were very concerned about, you know, losing so much weight. So my doctor that I had now become friends with at this point, which I mentioned earlier, um, I was being fed through a tube and my, they, they inserted through my chest and I was getting 1200 calories a day is what she sent me home on, which was not enough to maintain my weight, let alone increase my weight. And so that first day I got home, the home health nurse came over and so I'd moved back in with my parents at this time. and the home health nurse said, if you don't get Steven to better care, he's going to die. And my mom's like, okay, what does that mean? And she's like, it means you need to go today to one of the teaching hospitals in Chicago. So she, the home health nurse just happened to be, which as we talked before we started this podcast, there are no such thing as coincidence or karma. Um, so she was friends with one of the um, infectious disease doctors in downtown Chicago, Dr. Green was his name. So she called him and they said, bring him in immediately. So we literally loaded me up in the car and headed to Chicago. Um, and I ended up spending between the, the few weeks I'd spent at the local hospital where I lived and the time in Chicago, I was in there for about two months. Dang. Um, and it was, they didn't think I was going to make it. So when I got to University of Chicago Hospital, they did spinal taps, had the, my spinal fluid tested. It was pneumo, or it was a spinal meningitis. And so they started treating me for that. I couldn't eat anything. Like every time they put something in my mouth, I'd throw up. It'd be, you know, like green stomach vial. It was just couldn't eat. So the course of the time there, that was my rock bottom. Like and this laying on my deathbed. 
And this had nothing to do with HIV. No. So the thing with HIV <laughs> is that it is a disease that kills our immune system. So you never oh, it's not, technically you die from HIV. You from, die from the complications oh, of that other, the body I got allows you. to come in. So this had something to do with it. So it, it did because my my immune system was shot. Therefore, anything that I got around any virus or anything like that, I was prime candidate yeah, for so a host. Susceptible. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so when they released me from two months, yeah, yeah, and my mom and dad were there every day. And that was like hour and a half drive from our, the suburb we lived in. So, um, a lot of times they'd spend the night, you know, they bring the cot in. So, um, so the difference between HIV and AIDS is your CD4 count. That's what it was back then. So there's another count called your viral load. So your CD4 count is how many healthy fighter cells you have. So a normal person's thousand, 1200, somewhere in there. Anything under 250 is considered full-blown AIDS. The other count is your viral load, which tells how many copies of the virus are in your blood cells. So when they discharged me, my CD4 count was two, zero two, yeah. And my viral load was in the hundreds of millions of copies. And the doctor said, and I remember Dr. Green saying this, he's like, we've done all we can do. You're dead. We'll just see how he responds. But he did say, I know if he's in Chicago for another winter, he'll not make it. So my parents literally closed up my dad's business, sold their house, and we moved to Washington State, Whidbey Island. Because that's where my uncle lived. But we knew we couldn't stay in that extreme environment. Um, so originally, we we're going to go to Oklahoma. We actually shipped, they shipped all their furniture down there to be around my godparents. And my uncle lived in, uh, on Whidbey Island and he's done very well for himself. God's really blessed him. And so he had construction like businesses that my dad could like step in and help out in. And he had always wanted to live there. I had always wanted to live there. We never kind of thought it was an option just because of the expense of like the island. Um, and so with the help of my uncle, we moved out there and got set up and he had a horse ranch, which was a huge, huge part of my healing process, which I didn't realize at the time. Um, but yeah, so, so we made that transition um, and God started using the medication to heal my body. Um, the doctor I went to there, young guy, um, I think he was probably fresh out of his fellowship in infectious disease. And he just started throwing meds at me. Um, I was on like 12 different medications Were they at like one time. experimental at that point? So, no, they were all, <laughs> <laughs> they were all FDA approved, but we know that doesn't mean much, does it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, when, when I went to the doctor there and he was like, I'm going to put you on all these meds. And back then they had to order them. You couldn't just like go to the local pharmacy and pick that stuff up. And so I went to pick up all my meds and he's like, all right, I want to go through each one of them and go through all the possible side effects with each one. 
And thank goodness I knew enough to know about the power of the mind. And so I said, no, I said, we're not going to do that. And he's like, well, you need to know what to expect. And I'm like, no, we're not doing that. And I've been in the hospital enough to know you have to manage your own healthcare because <laughs> they don't. And so I said, I know how I feel. And if that changes, I'll call you. But I said, you're not going to load my mind up with all the possibilities of what could happen. Oh, you didn't want to know the side effects. I did not want to you know were, the side oh, effects. You were saying yeah, you were going to do the medicine. I'll you, do the medicine. But you didn't want to. But I don't want to know what each side effect is. Because the power of the mind, it can manifest stuff that's not even there. Yeah. And so um, so I went on all the meds. Um, outside of some irritable bowel syndrome, I had no side effects with all the Dang. medications. You never. And I was on it for probably close to 20 years. The same stuff? The same stuff. Yeah, just recently have I changed my medications. Like I'm down to th like four pills a day now. Dang, dude. Yeah. So, and like just taking those 12 meds was like a full-time job because some you had to take first thing in the morning and you couldn't eat for two hours. And then some you had to take with food and then some you had to take two hours after food. And so some of them were three times a day. So trying to navigate all of that was just like a nightmare. It was a part-time job. Yeah. Or full-time job. Yeah, it was a disaster. So <clears throat> some of them are chewable, some of them are swallowed, you know, so some of them were liquid. So yeah, it was, it was crazy. So the nice thing about living there on Whidbey is my uncle owned a 95 stall, 100 by 300 indoor arena training facility in, down by Seattle. And we did all of the breeding and foaling out up on the farm on Whidbey. And so he's like, you can work as much as you want or as little as you want. So with all you were going through, this was like the perfect landing spot. Oh my <clears> gosh. <throat> like so God ordained. Did, did you have any affections for horses growing up? So when I was little and we moved to Decatur, my mom's dad, so my uncle's dad too. So my uncle Steve, where we went and my mom, or brother and sister, um, he had bought me a horse. And so we lived on an acre. So it wasn't like we had places to ride. But literally, she was my buddy growing up. Like dad says, like he remembers one day coming home and we had three rail, you know, board fencing and my feet were on the top rail and I was parallel with my hands on her base of her mane trying to crawl on her. And he's like, freaked me out because I'm like, if you fall. Oh, yeah. Especially with all your stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so he's like, I like come flying in the driveway, slam the van in park, jump out. And he's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and he's like, what I realized is like, she would never have moved if you had thrown firecrackers under her because we had like a connection. Yeah, she'd take care of you. Like he'd sit me on her and she'd just like walk around the, the field and he'd throw a saddle on her and she'd be on her hind feet. Like she'd be rearing up in the air and all sorts of stuff. But if I was on her, she just, she just knew, you know, so. So you, so, so I you, had a huge fondness for horses. Yeah. Yeah. And so and, them getting introduced to you. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was so healing. So now I understand why there's such thing as equine therapy mm -hmm. where they use horses for therapy. Um, he had a colt that was probably eight months old when we got there. Um, it was weaned. And if you walked up to the paddock, it would try to go out the fence on the other side. 
And within probably three or four months, I could like tuck its lead rope in my belt loop and walk all over. Like he had like 80 acres and there was like four houses on it and stuff. And it walk all over and he'd just follow me around like a puppy dog. What, what kind of horses? Paints and quarters. What, and for showing? So most of, in the beginning, it was like showing for like um, kids events, like Western Pleasure, English. Um, we were just starting to get into some reining and working cow horse and cutting towards the end of our time doing the horses. Um, but in the beginning it was, and a lot of halter. So we actually raised the American Paint Horse Association has, uh, an award called the triple crown. So when it's awarded, each zone can give it and you have to win halter as a weanling, halter or lunge line as a yearling, and then two-year-old Western pleasure fraternity. And they're all fraternities. So we have the only Marin APHA history that's actually done it. Oh, wow. So she won halter as a weanling. She won halter and lunge line as a yearling, which is very hard to do. And then she won the two-year-old fraternity as well. So, yeah. That's pretty so, cool. So we definitely had good horse flesh. And did you get into showing yourself? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The very, when I first moved out there, of course I was still pretty weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember going to the first horse show and our trainer, Gary Baldwin, um, they were auctioned off, um, stallion semen for the next year's maturity. And so he's like, Hey, would you lead one of the the mares out there for me while we, you know, auction off his, uh, semen. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And so I got out and I'm like, that's kind of fun. And he's like, really? He's like, you think you'd like to do that? I'm like, yeah. I said, I know I'm going to do this. And so the next year at that show, I had a wheeling filly that I showed for the first time. And uh, I didn't plan it that way, but I remember how it worked out. Yeah. Gary's like, he goes, I want you to remember this. And I'm like, remember what? And he goes, this show. He goes, do you remember being here last year? And I said, yeah. He goes, do you remember what you told me? I'm like, no. He's like, you told me you were going to show. And here you are a year later at this show showing. That's cool. So he goes, be careful what you put out there because your words have meaning. Hmm. So, yeah. Did Let me jump back real quick. Yeah. When you went to the hospital for the two months, was that the end of the drinking? Oh, I wish. <laughs> um, it was, it was to that level. Um. I still struggled with knowing when was enough um, after I got better. And it was all because of the country dancing. Like I would go, I was having so much fun. And now I know the science behind alcohol. So there's a, I don't know if you've heard of Andrew Huberman. Andrew Huberman. Um, He's a neuro uh, researcher out of Stanford University. And then Jordan Peterson. Oh yeah. Yeah. So him and Jordan just did, it's like a 17 minute podcast that the title's like why alcohol should be illegal. Um, class one carcinogen, um, like level two narcotics, like all of these things that you would have to have a prescription to use, like it's alcohol and what it does to the brain and how it releases the neurochemicals and has you craving more, always looking for that feeling. Like it's understandable why people struggle with alcohol. Now. Yeah. And so once I got better, I would still go to the bar. I would still go dancing in Washington. in Washington and I would still have way too much to drink. But I would say 99% of the times I would have a designated driver 
I would not make, I wouldn't just date three or four women at a time. You know, I was, I was being more responsible for it, but yeah, it was still a problem. Yeah. So the last time I drank, um, when I finally quit and I had really curbed it to where it was just for social stuff and I was doing better about not getting blackout drunk and stuff like that, but definitely like too much. And my buddy had come over, we were having a bonfire at my house and he had just bought a brand new, um, Honda 1000, like crotch rocket and just had a bunch of plastic detailing done on it, new tail lights and all that. I had my truck out by the bonfire at my house. So I'm like, I'm going to pull the truck around, park it in the driveway for in the morning to go to work. And I wasn't paying attention. And I endowed his bike. Oh no. About 10 feet into my garage. And I was like, well, that was stupid. And so that was expensive. Yes. Very expensive. And so I was like, yeah, I don't think I should probably be drinking anymore. So that was it. Yeah. So that was it for probably 15 years. I'll drink once in a while with my wife now. Like I'll have a drink. Um, yeah. One, two drinks. That's my max. So, and I seem to handle that fine. So what, what though, after listening to that podcast, I just listened to that podcast last week. And after listening to that, it's like, Oh, with Jordan Peterson, with Jordan Peterson and Huberman, it's like, it is so bad for our brains and our bodies. It's like, yeah. So I've really been, the God's been talking to me about like, is it really worth it? Cause I still have HIV. So my body's already compromised. So yeah. So you're in Washington. Mm-hmm kind of getting healed up Mm -hmm. and kind of sorting through the meds and getting that rhythm down of staying alive, literally. Yes. Um, And you're working for your uncle. Working for my uncle. On the horse farm. Yep. Breeding and raising the colts. So. What's up? Dating? Um, Loosely? Loosely. Off and on, once in a while. Nothing too serious. Um. Once I kind of start getting my crap together. So, yeah. And, and, and any of those conversations that ever like, Hey, look, I have HIV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I started, be, I started being honest about that. Um, <clears throat> and I, I'm amazed at how, um, we humans are resilient and how we are understanding and can have empathy and compassion for others. So, so do you find that you were met with a lot of that in telling the girls you were dating? Yes. hundred percent of the time, actually outside of that very first one. Yep. So, which kind of shocked. And even like I would hang out. So I would do all the breeding and stuff up on the Island, but then I would go hang out a lot down at the training facility in Woodenville and everybody there knew my story. And like, they didn't treat me any different. Yeah. They, so it they really kind of wrecked my, <clears throat> my preconceived idea that like, I can't tell anybody. Yeah. Because they would like shake your hand and not oh, be afraid hug to me touch or you. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was definitely a journey. So, and started getting, so getting my life back on track spiritually happened during that time in Washington too. So even when I would go and maybe have a few too many beers at the bar or something like that. Like I'd still get them to go to church the next morning, you know, cause that was important to me. 
Um, so, and that ended up leading to, so I eventually met a gal at the place I danced down in by Seattle and we ended up getting married and kind of through that, um, how old were you at that point when you got married? 30. Oh, okay. So, so wow. I was, yeah. So I always grow up saying I'm not getting married till I'm 25 because I knew how selfish I was Yeah, <laughs> and it would not make a good husband. And then when I hurt turn at 25, I'm like, yeah, I better wait till I'm 30 because <laughs> I still ain't got it all out of my system yet. Um, so yeah, so I got married when I was 30. Um, and we got very involved in our church. We were doing stuff. We we're helping with the youth department. Um, I'd still drink too much once in a great while, but it was very, very minimal at that time. Um, and I built our home. So I took a year off from kind of the horse deal of being so involved with that. And that's kind of that time we were trying to like cut back on the Western pleasure, the English and the halter and move more into the cow end of it. Um, so my uncle bought an own daughter, Dacalina, and I bought an own daughter, Peppy Sandbadger, and we were trying to get into those bloodlines. And so it was kind of a natural lull um, in things, which worked out great for my timing. So I took off um, and built my built our own house um, there in on Whidbey Island during that time and transitioned back more into the construction industry after that because she had a really good job with IBM. And as a man, I've, it started bothering me. Did that she made more money than you? It wasn't about the money. It was like, I felt like I wasn't contributing. Mm. And so, I mean, cause she always made more money than me, but at least with the construction, I felt like I was making a true honest contribution to the relationship as opposed to the horse thing, which was hit or miss, as you know. Yep. Um, and it was never reliable. So, so I transitioned that. And so then out of that and working with the youth group, I ended up becoming our part-time youth pastor at our church, uh, Nazarene church there on Whidbey Island and, uh, loved the one-on-one time with the kids and helping them navigate life. Cause I had sure had a lot of life experience yeah. to share. You've been through a lot by the time you're 30. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we ended up um, getting into a rough patch in our marriage and um, got divorced. So I was 35 years old. I was part-time youth pastor on my own construction company, had 12, 15 head of horses scattered across the U.S. with breeders and trainers and broodmares and babies at our house. Um, and she like took off. So I went from a two count, two income family to a one with probably $3,000, $4,000 worth of monthly expenses just on horse flesh. Yikes. And yeah, so got rid of the stud, got rid of the show horses that were in training, like liquidated all the brood mares and babies. Um, some of them as like, take them, you owe me a horse someday. <laughs> Others like pennies on the dollar, but just to get out from the monthly expenses. Um, and that was in like 2005. Um, and 
that rocked my world. Well, of course. I, yeah, because on so many levels, my mind's like, I mean, because in any church or denomination, divorces, I mean, the shame of, especially if you're in any leadership role, right? Yeah. Is just like, yeah, you're you put, want to you're put on a pedestal. Hide. Yeah. Yeah. You're held to a different standard than everybody else. Um, which was there any attempt at counseling or any of that back in those days? Um, so the church offered to pay for some. I think she went with me a couple times, probably three or four times. Um, I continued going, um, even though she wouldn't for a while. Uh, so my first time ever doing counseling, um, my family did not grow up that yeah. <laughs> counseling was a thing. Ex-military construction worker, like therapies for people that are like crazy. Yeah. So um, it was super helpful. Um, even the little bit that I did, I could see how impactful that was. Um, the only other experience I'd had with any sort of thing like that was in that 96. So I would have been 26 years old. Yeah. I went to a 12 day experiential retreat, which I did not know that's what it was when I signed up to go. My sister had met somebody and she's like, Hey, I'm going to go to this thing in Kansas city. You want to go? And I'm like, Hey, I've never been to Kansas city. Yeah, I'll go with you. I had no clue what I was signing myself up for. And we go and there's like 35 people that go through this whole like healing process to discover who God created you to be. Um, and that was actually the first time I'd ever told a group of people about my health. And there was 35 people that literally came and wrapped their arms around me and hoisted me up on their shoulders. Hmm. It was freaking oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was that experience focus seminars was very healing to know that I wasn't damaged. My disease did not dictate who my identity was. Mm. So yeah. So I had had that counseling. How how did how did you cope with the all the things that come with losing a marriage? Um, I I picked up drinking a little bit, um, not as much. Um, what did the church do with you? So the church gave me some time off. The church offered to pay for as much counseling. Well, not as much as I wanted, but they gave me a stipend for counseling. Um. They did a pretty good job. Yeah. You know, so they at least tried. They didn't I've run heard you some horror. Door, yeah. I've heard some horror stories. Yeah. You know, um, no. And so then, um, I ended up resigning just because I wasn't in a good place. And so, um, yeah. And I'd made some really bad decisions during that time, not being in a good place. Um, and so I stepped away. And that whole experience is really what led me into the career I'm in now. So did you, how long did you stay there? What? When, so when, when I, did you leave yeah, Washington? So I left Washington in 2008. So I went through my divorce. She left in 05. It took forever. Like divorce brings, d divorce and death bring out the worst in people. 
Um, I mean, like the whole process to get divorced. We had no kids. We had one asset together, the ranch. It should not have taken that long. And I bet we spent fifty or $60,000 getting divorced. It was ridiculous. Like, you got the better rake. Like, I want the green garden hose, not yeah. the brown garden yeah. hose. This, that sort of stuff. That I'm like, just give me a number you want. And we'll just call it done, you know? And so, um, so yeah, so that wasn't to, till 06. Um, and then I did that, a lot of that counseling during 05 and 06. Um, dated a, a little bit in 07 and was like, yeah, I'm just not feeling it. Um, in 06. Was it 06? Yeah, 06, my uncle passed away that was living in Virginia um, very unexpectedly. Um, he was a very active guy. Like he worked out with free weights, ex-Marine, um, inactive Marine is what I called him. Um, and he had a massive heart attack and died on his bike ride mm. um, after work one night. And so my aunt and her two girls were just lost. Um, and so... The whole family went out several times that year to support him. I went out three different times to help just kind of get her house ready to sell. Then I went out when it sold to move her to her new house. And then I went out again, like to help her get the new house all set up and stuff like that. And so ended up meeting a gal out there um, that friends of hers went to church with at a Nazarene church out in Virginia. And so we started talking long distance and, um, ended up turning into um, a pretty serious relationship long distance. And she was instrumental on affirming the call that I felt like God had on my life. Um, she was one of the probably second or third people that had kind of pushed me in that direction um, to go back to school and become a therapist. And so it was, um, did you move out there? I did. So did so in the divorce you sold, you had to sell the ranch. So I had to sell everything, um, got rid of all the horses. And it was funny. I remember when I resigned from the church, I remember standing in Pastor Ben's office and him going, I know what you need to do next. He's like, but you're not going to like it. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not going to like it? He's like, well, he's like, you need to become a therapist. And I'm like, well, what wouldn't I like about that? I love the one-on-one -on -one with the kids. He's like, well, you need a master's degree. And I'm like, there's no way in hell I'm going back to school for six years because I didn't even have my undergrad. Uh, my first round of college right out of high school, like, that was a complete disaster. Like, I pulled a 0.5 GPA in the first year. <laughs> nice. So I was on the 12-year program. Um, so anyway, um, after I met Michelle and she – she said that, you know, God's given me some scriptures. Um, she was a fairly new Christian. She grew up Roman Catholic. And so she had recently, I mean, it'd been a couple of years, um, had become a Christian and God had given her some scriptures and stuff. And so we had lots of conversations about that. And so she kind of affirmed that that calling that I felt God was leading me to. So I started taking some just math classes and stuff like that in Washington. And then once we got engaged, um, we decided for me, it'd be better for me to move there because she had a really good job. Um, she worked for Capital One and I could focus on school. And so I moved there in 2008 and started community college. 
um, at 38 years, 37 years old. And I remember the first day, like pulling onto the parking lot at the community college campus and getting out of the truck and shutting the door. And there's all these 18 year olds, not his kids around there. And I was like, are you sure this is what you want me to do? Very humbling. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, it was. And I never liked school. Like I didn't even like recess. Like the social part was the only reason I showed up to school every day. And so I was like, this is going to suck. That's really like especially the that, mindset. Especially knowing you got to be there that long. Yeah. Six years is a long time when you're almost 40. And so, um, yeah, so I just hunkered down and hunkered did it down and did it. So, and I remember it was funny before every test, cause you know, in undergrad, you take a lot of tests and quizzes and stuff. And before every test, I'd be like, Lord, just help me remember what I've studied and read. I'm not asking for a miracle. I'm just asking you to help me recall whatever it was that I put into the brain and ended up graduating Kumasamalati from my undergrad and did my master's with honors. Nice. And it didn't feel hard, which was the shocking part to me. Well, if you're supposed to do it. Yeah. There's grace for it. For sure. To walk through that door. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of how. And what was, what was, what was your degree in? So my undergrad was in behavioral science and my master's was in social work, clinical social work. So, yeah, and uh, when I started my undergrad in Virginia, I, because I've had some life experiences, like, okay, I want to set myself up for success here. Like, I don't want to be taking a bunch of classes and then get to the end and be like, oh, you didn't need that when you need this one, you know? And so I Googled Christian counselors and uh, there were several places that showed up and I noticed that like half of them were all tied to this one agency. And so I said, well, looks like he's figured it out. So that's where I'm going to start. So I call him and his name, Mike Flynn. And I said, Hey, I'm just going back to school, become a therapist. I would really like to sit down and just pick your brain and see if you have any advice for me. And like, he probably had 30 counselors on his staff in like four different locations around Richmond, Virginia. And so he's like, yeah, come on in. He's like, love to sit down and chat. So I go in and of course I had my cowboy boots on, you know, and stuff. And he was a cowboy at heart and we hit it off. And I ended up like starting volunteering, helping him run groups, like within two weeks of our meeting. Dang. And like, technically you're not supposed to do that until you are in your master's program to internship. And he just started me right away. And he's like, we won't call it counseling. We'll call it coaching. (laughs) And so, um, it was such a blessing. Um, he's why I did social work instead of counseling because like social work is a much broader field. So if I ever get burnt out doing what I'm doing now, I can go work in HR for, you know, big corporations. Like there's all sorts of different options in, in the social work department. So what, what brought you to Idaho? So I, this is another God thing. So I feel like since I've started this journey, God has blown doors open for me that 
you know, it t- talks in the scripture about how he wants what's best for us far more than we can even fathom or conceive. And that's what I feel like has been happening since I've like really stepped into what I feel like he's calling me to do. So when I graduated with Kumis Malati and the president of my campus, of my Bluefield College, which is where I graduated from, used to teach at VCU in the mental health field. So VCU had a social work program, top 15 in the country. So I applied. It's like, we'll stay there. I'll get my master's done. Our original goal for Michelle and I was always to move back to the Northwest once I was done with my schooling. Um, so I applied to VCU and got denied. So I didn't get accepted. So being 40 years old, over 40 now, I'm like, okay, I want to know like what you're looking for in case I want to apply again. So I scheduled a meeting with the chair of the department and I went in prepared because um, I'm not 21, just finishing my undergrad. And so I said, listen, well, she came down, the head of the department came down and she's like, now what's this meeting about? I said, well, I didn't get accepted. And I would just like to know like what's missing in my packet and kind of be prepared for wherever I apply next. Cause I hadn't applied anywhere else. And she's like, well, we put a lot of stock in our GPA in a very snooty tone. And I was like, oh, we're going to go there. And so I said, great. I said, it's one of the reasons I applied. And she's like, well, what was your GPA? And I said, 3.9. She's like, oh, she's like, well, that's excellent. And she's like, well, maybe your letters didn't think you were ready for master's level work. And so I had a letter from the president of Bluefield College that was one of my professors that used to teach in the mental health field at VCU. And then I had another letter from Mike Flynn, who I was interning with, who also used to teach at that school. And then I had another letter. They were all excellent recommendations. And so I said, well, here's the three copies of the ones that I sent in. I'm like, you want to read them and tell me like kind of what wasn't right? And she's like, oh, well, she's like, these are excellent letters. And so I said, well, the question still stands. It's like, what was missing? And as part of my entrance packet, I had to write why I wanted to be a social worker. And I couldn't do that without giving my testimony. Mm. And at a state school, I don't think the, I don't think I lined up to their belief system. And I think that's why I didn't get accepted, which was like my uncle, he wanted to sue them for discrimination. I'm like, no, we're not going there because it was a total God thing. So literally the morning after that meeting, we flew out to Idaho to visit my sister and my parents for, I think we were coming out for a whole week. And my sister was working at NNU at the time in the athletic department. She was their finance person. And she's like, I think we have a master's of social work program. And I'm like, really? Like, there's not very many around the country. Like, there was only four in the whole state of Virginia. And uh, so anyway, so I called. Sure enough, they did. And uh, the chair of the department answered. And I told her I was here on vacation and would like come in and talk to her. And she's like, yeah, just come in this afternoon. So I went in and literally I knew I wanted to work in the addiction field after my struggle with alcohol. And the group of people I worked with in Virginia was um, sex addiction. So usually men that were struggling with either pornography or sexual addiction. And I fell in love with that group of guys. And so I knew that addiction was going to be my focus. And so in and you, um, just within the last year, 
had revamped their social work department and you could actually do a special track of addiction within the social work field. And so I applied, got accepted. Of course, we're back home. Like, um, I remember I was, I was guiding at a quill preserve out there and I just got back from a hunt and Michelle had called and left a message that my entrance or my acceptance letter had showed up in the mail. And unbeknownst to me, Michelle tells the story now that she's like, this whole time I'm thinking there is no way we're moving to Idaho. Mm, right. She's like, we, I've got a great job here, you know? And so, um, so we get the packet or the, int- or the acceptance letter and we start packing the house up and she had applied for several remote jobs or she had asked if she could do the job remotely for several other jobs openings and none of them would like let her work remotely. And so literally like the week before we're moving to Idaho, um, we're just going to sever from capital one and she's going to have to find a job out here and I'm going to have to find a job while I'm doing my master's. And so Literally just a few days before one of the VPs that she used to work for called her and she's, he's like, Hey, he's like, there's this role that's come open. He's like, you would be a perfect fit for it. Um, would you be willing to transfer out of your current role? And she's like, well, I'm getting ready to sever from the company. She's like, cause they won't let me work remotely. And we're moving to Idaho for my husband to go to grad school. And he's like, you can work remotely. She's like, nobody else has been approved. It. He's like, I'll approve it. And so when we got here, she started a new role in the company working remotely out of one of their offices. Um, she was attached to the Tigard, Oregon office. That's awesome. And so that was a huge like weight off. What did you, when did you start having kids? Were you out there still? Yeah. So both of our boys were born in Virginia. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of another major ordeal. Um, because HIV is a sexually transmitted disease. Right. Um, my first wife and I were actually, um, collecting semen, shipping it to Boston and having it washed. So the way our, the male reproductive system is designed, the only time the sperm come in contact with anything that could be that any of the fluid in our bodies that would have HIV in it is during orgasm. So the seminal fluid is what has the HIV in it, not the sperm. They're protected somehow Mm. miraculously. And so there's a washing process they could do and then just save the sperm. And then they do like, like we call it the turkey baster method. Yeah. AI. So, um, so my wife and I get married in Virginia and we had a system malfunction. I'm doing air quotes right now. <laughs> um, and through the breakage, she gets pregnant. Oh, and not the washed, not the not washed the... stuff. And so, like a few weeks later, she comes home from work, and I'm sitting at the table, probably studying. And she gives me this little bag, and I'm like, "What's that for?" And she's like, "Just open it." And so I open it and there's like a bib and like this little shirt that like, I love my daddy or something. And I've never been speechless in my entire life. And I just sat there like with my mouth probably dropped to the floor 
because I had all this mixed emotion. Sure. Like I'd always wanted kids, even in high school, I remember wanting kids like, and going through this, like, will I ever be able to have them? Her and I had never really talked about like, that should process, we start the process yeah. or any of that? And so like worried about her, sure. you know, worried about, will the baby be infected? And so she calls and gets um, an appointment to go in and see her OBGYN and we meet with the PA and like just God just orchestrates everything. So the PA's brother died of HIV. So she's very familiar with the disease and how it works in the body. And so she calls and gets all of my lab reports, goes through them. And she's like, she's like, you're fine, Michelle. She's like, you do not need to worry about it. She's like, all his counts are in normal range, his viral load count that I talked about earlier. So if the disease is suppressed, your viral load is non-detectable, meaning it's zero. They can't find any. So that's where mine was. So just that first meeting, oh, like man. all of this weight was just like huge. This like felt like I was floating in the yeah. office. And so, and then she's like, well, how many kids do you want? I'm like, I don't know if I was younger, a dozen. And she's like, well, she's like, don't waste any time. She's like, get it done now. And so Colton and Wyatt are like 20 months, 21 months apart. Oh, so you did. So yeah, so we did. And we were trying for a third. Um, but I think God in all of his wisdom said, I think you got all Jeez. you can handle. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out he's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. They're high energy, active. Um, yeah. Healthy teenage Healthy, boys. Yep. 13 and 12. So almost. almost 14. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, he knew what he was doing. So you finished graduate mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, and Michelle's just one other thing, like Michelle's job, like she would keep. So big corporate America are famous for reorgs. And they went through probably three or four reorg processes while she was attached to Tiger, Oregon and eliminated her job. And literally God would like miraculously prevent another opportunity for her to switch roles. So she ended up being attached to Vegas in the end. And uh, she quit in 2017 to help me with my practice. And they, just probably a year ago, her boss from down there called and was like, have you ever thought about coming back? And she's like, nope, have not. <laughs> not once. But yeah. But he just kept providing and opening doors for us to like do this. So it it freed me up where like I did some plumbing projects and stuff like that while I was in school to help out um, some remodels and stuff like that. But it really allowed me to focus on what I was there for which was a huge blessing. Yeah. So, and the funny thing is when she quit and she was, I mean, she was upper level management, so she was making good money. And I was very nervous about her quitting and the reduction in income and our lifestyle didn't change. And if you look back at our tax returns, it doesn't make any sense because there's a huge void for two or three years. And it's like, our lifestyle didn't change. And I think that's just another one of those, like God ordained, he just like provides the way.
So yeah, it's been like, I keep telling her we need to write a book For just sure. about the way God's shown up. Well, I mean, your whole course story, of life. <clears throat> so it's crazy. Yeah. It's been, it's been quite a journey. So yeah. So, um, graduated with my master's program and, um, I don't know if I should say this on air. I didn't know what I didn't know. So I didn't know you couldn't like jump out and like just throw out your shingle. So I did. Um, you're, I guess, supposed to be under like supervision and stuff during that time, which I was, but it just wasn't like I had mentors in my life that were guiding me and coaching me and stuff, but it wasn't official with the state, um, which I didn't know. Um, so yeah, so I went right into private practice right out of graduation. Um, and I was at Boise Counseling Center at the time, and they're like, hey, to help you out getting started, we're just going to charge you a percentage of your intake to cover your rent instead of charging you the full rent because it'll probably take you six months to a year to build up clientele. And the third month, my percentage was like 30% over the rent. Oh, geez. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, wait, guys, time out here. Can we, uh, can we rene renegotiate that? And they're like, are you like, seriously? Like they were shocked that it filled up that quickly. And what did you, what did you have a specialty or was it so, just general counsel? Yeah. So my very first trauma class in my master's program it was the very first class I went, walked into the professor, um, Janelle Stoffer. She's an EMDR therapist and I didn't know anything about EMDR. I'd never heard of it. Um, but she actually did a little demonstration with one of the students in the class and I could see something physically change in that student. And I'm like, I don't know what the heck that is, but I'm going to do that. And so before I had graduated with my master's, I had already got EMDR trained and I had already started my CSAT training, which is the certified sex addiction therapist. Um, so I had made one trip down to Phoenix, Arizona for a week long training with Patrick Carnes, who I affectionately refer to as the godfather of sex addiction. He's the guy that first coined the phrase back in the eighties. Um, and he's the guy that's done all the research around it. Um, so, yeah, so I knew um, sex addiction was something I wanted to work with. And then as I got into the EMDR training and the sex addiction training, discovering that trauma is what drives it all. Yeah. I mean, you all could, of it. Right. I, yeah. You could take the whole DSM, which is our diagnostic manual. So every time you see a client, you're supposed to give them a diagnosis of what's going on in their lives. And you could boil it all down to one word trauma. So, and, I know there's probably therapists out there that would disagree with that, but I stand by that statement. It all goes back to unmet needs growing up that the body's still reacting to in present current day situations. And it will continue to until that part gets its need met. And it's never too late to circle back with ourselves, with our kids. And with our spouses. So, yeah. Yeah, I believe that to be true also, so, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your testimony is evident of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
it's never too late. So, yeah. So, um, so I started, um, seeing sex addiction clients. Um, I started, I was very, very fortunate. So did you like work with men only in that space? Um, in the beginning? Yes. Um, it's, it's about a 25%, um, female ratio of sex addiction or pornography. So they're a lot, you're a lot less likely to see them in your office just because they are a lower percentage, but that's changing with our younger populations. Yeah. And with porn. Yes. The, the younger populations, the percentage is growing rapidly. So I just, um, I heard a study, it's probably been six months ago now in West Ada County, which is just kind of that West of Boise area. Um, 75% of all high school students have sexted each other. That's mind blowing. And I would guess that probably men in our evangelical churches is about the same rate that struggle with sex addiction. Oh, I'm sure of it. And with our pastors, like the last study was done like 20 years ago, and it was 50% of pastors then. So I know we've just come through what some people have classified as an epidemic. I don't. I consider this an epidemic because it's cross-cultural. There's no social economic status that isn't like subjected to it. There's no gender. Like there's no group that's not affected by sex addiction or pornography addiction. Yeah. So in fact, I did my thesis on the epigenetics of sexual addiction and you have to put your population to get your research paper approved. And I put all, it was like a one sentence yeah. uh, paragraph and the professor really, he's like, wasn't very happy. And he's like, you need a population. And I'm like, it's everyone. Like there's nobody immune to this. And he's like, well, you need to clarify it. And I'm like, I'm telling you, there isn't any. And so after showing him the research, he's like, oh my gosh, he's like, this is everywhere. And it's because it's affordable, it's accessible, and it's anonymous. That's the three A's. Yep. That's You've it. I've heard that before. I mean, it's, it's everybody's, well, we're all designed for intimacy, right? Absolutely. We're all sexual beings. Yeah. And this is such a counterfeit mm. of the real thing yeah. that we're all mm -hmm. longing for and desire and built for and need. Yeah. And those back to what you were saying earlier, like if our needs aren't getting met in that place, yeah. it's easy to see how this is all set up for this to turn into a pandemic Yeah, in that all the four points you just made. Yeah. And it's, and it, and it, it's just the counterfeit for what we're all longing for. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it just keeps growing because it doesn't fulfill that need, that yeah. whole for real, true yeah. intimacy. Counterfeit never will. No. And it's, yeah, it's the same thing as any addiction at some level. Oh, yeah. Other than, yeah, it doesn't, you don't lose your job because right. of it. You don't get, you don't go to jail because of it. You can hide it a lot better. Yeah. It's anonymous yeah. and all the things you said. So, yeah, it's a mind-boggling yeah. thing. I read a study years ago when I was doing my research um, that 
the brain actually releases different chemicals if you're watching porn and masturbate as to when you're having intimate sex with a partner. Hmm. Like, so it's counterfeit and our body knows it. We're not fooling anybody. We're not fooling anybody, which is why you need more either in time or more intensity, which is why you get into some of the aggression type stuff that's out there. That's just satanic almost. Yeah. Cause it's not meeting that. Cause it's not, you're it's not getting the same chemical release in the brain. Yeah. And so, um, well, and it's just the, it's like any addiction to the shame of it. I just know, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't go to school for anything, but I understand shame and brokenness yep. and, you know, the work we do with wild courage is, yeah. is seeing how crippling mm-hmm. and it is in our circles and the, the shame factor of it all is like, it's whole, yeah. it's a whole nother yeah. stream of what this addiction causes and it's, it's devastating. Yeah. It's to shame families apart. Oh yeah. It's, it's crippling individuals internally. And no matter how much work they do on their family system, until they take care of the crippling internal shame, the other's not going to change. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a bitch, man. It is. So, and that's why I love Partner of Wild Courage is because people get to come in and tell their story and there's healing in that. And no shame. No judgment. And no judgment. Yeah. I love being able to sit across from people in my office and they're like, you can just tell there's something they've never told anybody. Mm-hmm. And you're like, hey, man, there is no judgment here. In fact, if you've heard my story, you'd probably be like, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Yeah. You know. That's the cool thing about being on the other side of, of redeemed. Yes. Is when you go to school for something and you have the plaque on the wall that gives you permission to do it. It's different when it's backed up by your story because you can validate somebody that your colleagues can't. Yeah. And it means something different to them. Yeah. My wife and I have, we haven't had it in a long time because I've done work around it, but I used to have a lot of shame about my past and all of the things I did and the people I hurt and the stuff. And she's like, yeah, but she's like, there's no person that you can't sit across the table from and understand where they're at at some level. And she's like, you wouldn't have that if you hadn't went through those things. Yeah. That's how I feel too. And so what Satan used to use to beat me up. Now I view as my Ebenezer stones where the Israelites used to stack their stones Yep, to point back to, to point back to. And I say, yep, that's an Ebenezer stone. Left to my own device, I might still be doing that crap. Yep. But that's where God showed up. And he, metanoia, changed my way of thinking about that to something better. So, yeah. So, now you're a, you do EMDR. Yeah. So, um, two of, I think, the best EMDR therapists that have ever walked the face of the earth, um, I got to be mentored by. Um, so Francine Shapiro discovered EMDR. So she was actually renting a room from this guy named AJ Popke. 
And Popke was, he had worked for NASA. He was the guy that marketed first, the first guy for voice recognition software, LED lights. Like he was on the cutting edge of a lot of different things as a salesperson. So he's renting Francine a room and she goes across the street to the park and walks around the lake and realized that she's less distressed or she's less stressed about the things that were like creating anxiety for her in just like a 40 minute walk. And she's like, well, that's weird. Like none of the circumstances has changed. And so her and AJ started kind of like talking about like what's happening and AJ, he, he used to tell the story that he's like, I'd walk down from my first cup of coffee in the morning and she'd be waving her fingers in front of my eyes like, what's bothering you today, AJ? And he'd be <laughs> like, get the hell out of my face, you know? Um, and so he ended up quitting Silicon Valley. So he had 100 people on his sales team, was a master at it, which also translates into being really gifted in therapy. Like if you can sell something, you can be a good therapist. And so he became a therapist like in his 50s. He went back to school. Like he was already training people how to do MDR. He was practicing EMDR on people and he decided he better be go get a certification to make it legal. And so he got his PhD when he was in his 70s. And he developed an addiction protocol with EMDR that I use with people regardless of whether they're coming in for addiction with a process, whether it's porn, gambling, eating, whether it's a drug or alcohol, or whether it's OCD, anger, doesn't really matter. If you have a behavior that you don't want, this addiction protocol will help it. And so I got to be mentored by him the last four or five years of his life. Oh, I actually wow. traveled with him and taught other people how to do EMDR. Um, and that was, I learned more in those four years, five years of traveling with him than I had the previous 10. So give us the 100,000 foot view of EMDR. So what, if I go, if I sign up with you and I show up at your office, what happens? Yeah. So... First, let me tell you about why it works. Okay. So the reason EMDR works, and I love that it was discovered, not created, because it's literally tapping into our natural healing process that God gave us. So when we dream, and the only time we dream during our sleep pattern is during our REM sleep pattern, which stands for rapid eye movement. EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization, which is how it desensitizes the old wounds. And then the reprocessing part is how we reframe that wound for going forward. So EMDR uses bilateral stimulation. So you can either move your eyes back and forth. You can wear headphones that have beeps from left to right. Um, my preferred method and what I use with 99% of my clients is I have little uh, pods that vibrate left, right, left, right, left, right. And they just hold those, or I prefer tucking them in my shoes and that way I don't have to think about them. So what that does is that that bilateral stimulation allows us access to both our left hemisphere and our right hemisphere at the same time. Which so, doesn't happen when you're just walking right. around. Yeah. So the, the bundle of nerves, there's this super highway that connects left and right hemisphere called our corpus callosum. 
And during conscious awakeness, it doesn't have a lot of flow. It's like a valve. But during REM sleep, that valve gets opened up and we have dreams that are actually us trying to process in unconscious state what's happening in our conscious world, Hmm. whether that's past, present, or future. It's why my dad had nightmares for 50 years and we didn't realize it. It was the things he saw in Vietnam were showing up in his dream, even though the dream didn't have anything to do with Vietnam. But that was his brain trying to move it from our, so our right hemisphere is our unprocessed side, and our left hemisphere is our processed side. I call the right side the in-basket for the older generation Mm -hmm. that gets overflowing on the desk, and you're like, I got to file all this stuff. And the left hemisphere is our filing cabinet, so it's all integrated stored, it's in its proper place, and it's functioning the way it's supposed to. So during EMDR, um, typical EMDR, we'll go back and focus on an event. And as we focus on that event, the brain automatically, it's nothing I do, like literally I can pretty much sit with a client quiet and have them focus on the event. Maybe once in a while giving a suggestion, like what did that person need during that time? Like, what did the younger you need? And it will pull it over and put it in the filing cabinet where it belongs. Wow. All on its own. Now, sometimes it gets stuck or I've, through working with AJ, I figured out how to speed that process up. Um, we call them cognitive interweaves. It's giving little suggestions to the brain. And the cool thing is, is the brain is the most complex thing on the world and probably one of the smartest things ever created that if my suggestion is not what the brain needs, it just totally disregards it. Like it never happened. Mm. And if it is what it needs, it totally it like grabs it and runs with it. Um, so I do EMDR a little different. Um, so I've created a protocol instead of focusing on the events of a person's life. I focus on the time frames of a person's life because we have unconscious things stored as traumatic events in our body. And if we're just focused on events, we may overlook those other things that we're unaware of. And by focusing on time frames, it allows the brain to really sort through and look for anything else that it may want to like heal. And so unconscious stuff doesn't show up as conscious memory, obviously, but it may show up as an abstract thought or picture. Or it may just show up as like, I've got this really like heavy weight feeling on my shoulder or on my chest or my stomach's like feels a little off. And that could be the way the body's storing that unconscious of like memory or event. And my protocol actually even takes it back to prior to our conception. So we know that children of alcoholics are predisposed to alcoholism. That's called epigenetics. Doesn't mean it's a hundred percent, but it means there's a higher probability. Um, and those epigenetic is how switches on our DNA sequencing can get turned on. And the cool thing is with EMDR, we figured out a way to go back and turn them off. Come on. So when I did my own work around my dad being in Vietnam before my conception, I had this um, amazing life-changing experience. And I had like hundreds of images of monochromatic army green war pictures go through my mind. 
And the crazy thing it was, it wasn't pictures that data brought home. It wasn't movie clips I had seen. It was these random pictures that I'd never seen before. And as I, as that happened, it was emotional. And also like this weight moved from my knees all the way up through the top of my head. And I literally felt like I could have ran a marathon in that moment. Dang. And I don't run anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah. So that's, that's what started me on this journey to say, why are we focusing on events instead of timeframes? And on that journey. we're missing things. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is the most holistic approach to wellness that I've ever seen because of the fact that we're not going back to look for events. We're going back and just holding space in timeframes and allow the body to do what God created it to do. Well, I mean, in my journey, it's been to, to your point, and I've never thought about this because I've never had this explained to me until right now. Um, as I've gotten more healing in certain times of my life, especially around the sexual abuse, mm-hmm. I've had brand new Stuff. memories pop up of other events that I, that were not in my conscious memory. Correct. And it's like almost like okay, I got I got. I've received a lot of healing from six to 10 mm. years old. And it was like almost there wasn't any room for anything else. Yep. And then I, you know, I've done a bunch of work, as you know. And then I just remember the first time this happened, like I had a, remembered something else that had happened in the sexual abuse space mm. that I didn't even know was there. Yeah. And I went and ran in my room and crawled under the covers. This was like two years ago. Yep. And had to start the whole process over. So what you're talking about is just giving space in those timeframes to see what's all there. Because we can only, again, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I feel like we're created. We can only handle so much. So at a certain time, right? So yeah. it's like we can only deal with these little bits of it at a time. It's your body and brain protecting yourself. Yeah, exactly. Because of it all flooded in at once. So it'd kill me. Yeah. I was just talking to a guy yesterday and like his therapist that he saw was one of the guys I've trained. And he said, it's so thankful you didn't give up your porn when you didn't have other resources and ways to like heal because you would have killed yourself. Oh, I, I've said this same thing. I, I think God gave me alcohol to get me to 40 years old. Yeah. If, cause I never dealt with anything until I quit drinking. And then right. that's, I never, I mean, yeah. I've told my story a thousand times, but I never put a gun in my mouth when I was drinking. Yeah. I didn't have to. Right. Yeah. Cause you just pick the bottle up and stick yeah. the gun. Yeah. And then three well, days into my sobriety, it was the yeah. first time I stuck a gun in my mouth. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense. It's yeah. like these coping things are for coping. Yes. I actually tell guys like. But then there's some, there's some space where that, that, that gap gets so narrow that the thing that's keeping you alive will kill you, which yes. it was going to kill Oh, me absolutely. Either way, which is what I feel like that, which is why we do what we're doing, right? Is absolutely. like, I, you and I understand that hopelessness mm-hmm. of 
the thing that's keeping me alive is about to kill me. And the reality of the pain and the trauma that I never feel like I could ever tell anybody will kill me. That's <laughs> going to kill me. And there's that little thin space in the middle of there where a lot of people don't make it yeah. through transition. the transition yeah. without getting help. Yeah. Yeah. It makes so much sense. All addiction is progressive to death. Mm. So I worked with sex addict years ago. His thing was like being choked out. They found him in a hotel room with a plastic bag taped around his head and his hand handcuffed behind his head or behind his back. That's progressive to death mm -hmm. had somebody not intervened. S alcohol, you can tell that story. Drug abuse, that's evident in so many documentaries that are out now about the pan the epidemic of the pills that they people oh, have yeah. yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I used all to love addiction those is progressive to death, if not intervened upon. And we need help to make that and it's okay. transition to get it it's absolutely okay it's it's not only okay you don't have another choice yeah nobody's got sober on their own from any addiction yeah it which again is the point of all this right like yeah. <clears throat> it's that's why our first core values humility yeah. like you gotta I got humbled, otherwise I'd be dead. Yeah. And that came from jail and all the things. But there's so many guys flying on the radar because they're not as dumb as me in doing the things I was yeah. doing. But it is it, it only leads one way. But those why guys... are we so afraid of it? Why are we so afraid of getting help? I feel like twenty years ago there was a different stigma on it than it is today. Is it pride? Uh, is it? Yeah. I don't, I think. Or is it shame? So one of my mentors told me years ago, and I told her she was crazy, um, that everything boils down to one thing, and it's the fear of being alone and unable to handle it. And the more I do this, the more I think she's probably right. Yeah. Well, to be unliked or unloved. Yes. And that, if you really knew me, yeah, you wouldn't there's no me. way you could accept yeah. me. You would leave me if you knew what I did. Mm -hmm. Which is why it's the power of story is what yeah. the whole point of Wild Courage is, yep. right? It's like the courage to tell your story and be seen and heard yeah. and no judgment. Yeah. And like, yeah, we're not running. It's all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's because it, there has to be ground zero. It's got to be somewhere. And I feel like it starts with having the courage to be vulnerable and tell your story to someone and not be rejected. Cause that's the fear, right? Is like, yeah, is rejection. Absolutely. Yeah. That is the, the root of all of it. I always say the root of sin is selfishness and the root of getting help is I'll be rejected. I'll be all alone. And the reality is there's not a human being that's been born or that will ever be born that isn't going to need somebody to go along with them on their journey. That's the epigenetic piece. Like we're all passing stuff down to the next generation. And like my goal is to do it better than I got it. Yeah. My kids are still going to need somebody to walk the journey. They're going to have to have courage to go tell their story. 
because they'll have one. Yep. So. It's, it's, it's so cool having you like join forces with us because it's like, I said at the retreat, it's like us playing basketball with Joel who played professional basketball. (laughs) That's how I feel like, um, even having conversations like this with you just because this you're, you're like such a high level in this and, and having you to lean into and, and your humility and sit in circles with us. And you're probably like, Oh my gosh, you guys have no idea what you're doing, but yet you're just, I love like, why joining forces? Can I ask you this? And I say this humbly, why does, why is wild courage working? What we do like at the fire and at the retreats and what we've kind of, what, why is it working? So I'm going to tell a story. So when I was first starting, I ran a lot of groups. I was at Boise Counseling Center. Um, I was the only believer. Um, and we were sitting in group one night, and there was probably 20 guys there, and me and Steven were co-leading it. And I said, you know what? If the church ever figures out how to do this, I'll be out of a job. Hmm. Because what we're doing here is we're creating holy ground for people to come in, share exactly where they're at, and nobody here is going to judge them. Nobody's going to hear is going to say, oh, you should go do this or you should go do that. We're going to accept them right where we're at, and we're going to love them enough not to leave them there. And that's why Wild Courage works, because that's what you're doing. You're allowing guys to come in, share what their deepest, darkest secrets are, and nobody makes a face. Nobody even bats an eye. They're like, dude, that must suck to go through that alone. That's why it works. Well, lucky for you, the church probably will never figure this out, so you're going to be I think I'm golden. wildly successful <laughs> yeah. for the rest of your life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it. I appreciate you answering that question because, you know, we really feel like organically through, you know, all of our stories, all the founders of Wild Courage, like, we just came across this organically mm-hmm. and these core values and like our rules of like no preaching, no yep. teaching, no Bible thumping, yep. go get that somewhere else. This, yeah. this place isn't for that. Yeah. This is a sacred place. Yeah. Feels like it. Yep. Well, it, it, I mean, people still show up as often as you'll let them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a part of it. I love it. So tell tell us what you're, tell us what you're doing now. Like how can people get a hold of you that uh are interested in EMDR? Okay. Um, So um, I'm just going to kind of run down like what I offer. Cause now you have your own healing center that offers a lot. Yeah. So now we, I've owned, opened up my own clinic. It's called Northwest wellness and it is located in Nampa, Idaho. And we offer several things. And what I love about how everything works together and gets integrated is it allows the body to do what God created it to do. So the EMDR 
is allowing the body to do what God created to do by allowing us to reprocess old stuff. The other thing that we offer is a device called Saraset, and it's CE Reset, because it's resetting your cerebral cortex, which is the outer layer of our brain. It resets all, all the areas, but that's what how they came up with the name, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, and it allows your brain to hear itself. So we use EEG sensors, which are little microphones, put them on your scalp in different areas. And the frequency that's picked up by those microphones is sent through a computer and played back to you in real time so you can hear it. And when the brain hears that you are out of balance in those areas, it automatically builds new neural pathways to bring it back into balance. That's crazy. It's super cool. DOD has a research facility set up for Saraset at Fort Bragg. The first research project on TBIs came back fantastic outcomes for those guys. So our soldiers are coming back with a completely different kind of concussion than football or car accidents because of the shock wave, the mm. energy wave from the blast mm -hmm. is creating damage completely through the cerebral cortex instead of just on the outer part of it. So far, Saraset's been the only device to show improvement in all six areas that they were measuring in the Dang. pilot study. And you do that. And we do that there. Yep. So the other thing we have is um, the energy enhancement system, which uses scalar energy, which was discovered in, well, in the early 1900s by Nikolai Tesla. Uh, he died in 1920, so it was before that. But it's fifth dimensional. And so it allows the cells in your body to recharge because everything in our body operates off an electrical frequency. And when our cells get damaged, and that frequency gets diminished, they reproduce a damaged cell. It's how cancer spreads. It's how dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, arthritis, diabetes, anything that's affected by a cell can have improvement from this device. And it is, it is the most state-of-the-art product on the market in the world. So, and you offer that too. And we offer that. Yeah. And it just went viral a year ago. Their goal was to have a hundred centers by the end of this year. We've already got over 500 centers around the world. Dang. Cause it's, it's working. Cause it's working. Cause yeah. It's, yeah. I just at our own center, we've seen detached retinas get healed. We've seen six millimeter tumors and lungs disappear. I seen a gal that was paralyzed for two years from a stroke regain her movement in her right side. Come on. Um, we've seen macular degeneration completely healed. Um, a gal did one overnight in the system. She'd been on insulin for 30 years. She didn't take insulin for seven days Damn. after one night. So, so if you need fixed up in your <laughs> yeah. heart or your body, body. <laughs> you're like a one-stop shop. Yeah. And I know you're adding a bunch of other things. Yeah, we just added red light bed. Um, I'm going to add a cold plunge tub and a medical grade hyperbaric chamber. Those are my short list items. And a wild courage fire. And I a mean, wild courage where, Friday where, fire. Yep. Yeah. What more does anyone need than to stop by there? How can they find you? Um, IdahoNWC.com. And then the phone number. Gonna have to look because I do not remember. So the phone number And is, I'll put all this in the show notes so okay. people can find it that way too. So the phone number is eight three three 
692, which stands for NWC, and then 3637, which stands for EMDR. Nice. So that's how they well, find me. Again, I just love your yes to this little band of brothers that we have put together and you being in the mix and the childlike wonder that you show up with and humility is always mm. a breath of fresh air. Thanks, dude. Um, and I just love getting to spend time with you and you never big dog me and make me feel dumb, which would take you about half a second to do. So I appreciate that you don't ever do that to me. I count it a privilege to be included in the leadership team and getting to set with guys. We run with some badass dudes, don't we? We do. There are some giants that show up for retreats and fires to help other guys. Yeah. And yeah. they've just, they've just done the journey. That's what's right. possible. And they, they, they don't have degrees. No, but, but they've walked the journey. Yeah. And they can speak to what it takes, mm -hmm. which is what makes a good therapist. Yeah. We talked about this at the, at the last retreat. Yeah. It's like, there's some therapists that are on their own journey and should probably figure that out before they be, should be seeing clients. Yeah. And then there's other therapists that have done the journey. And that's what makes Wild Courage so cool is the guys that are helping the other guys, have, they're on their journey. They're further ahead than the guy coming in. Well, and that's how this thing's scalable. Like, Absolutely. Let's, let's get our shit together. Yep. Go get healed and whole. Yes. And then this is how we change yep. the planet. We lock arms. Yeah. So we did a cold plunge at the last retreat. Yeah, you did. And what I loved is we got in the pool and some... One of the guys started like hyperventilating. He was not in a good spot. And you know what we did? We linked arms mm -hmm. and we had him look us in the eye. And he went around and looked at each guy in the eye. And each guy's like, you can do this, man. You can did his breathing this. regulate? Totally. Yeah. He quit shaking. His breath breathing regulated. And after we got out, I'm like, how was that? He's like, that was good. I'm like, no, no, no. That's not what I'm asking. I'm like, how was it to feel like you did it? Mm. And that you had brothers that were there to help you. Yeah. And it was, yeah, he was in tears. I was in tears. But that's such a beautiful picture of it what is. the brotherhood looks like yeah. and not being alone and the scary things. Yep. Well, Stephen, I love you. Great. Love you too, man. Thank you. Third time was a charm. Yes, it was. <laughs> and yeah, guys, again, I'll put all of his information in the show notes. And if this resonates with anybody, look him up. He's the man and he will love on you and absolutely all the right ways it's my honor honor to hear people's stories yep all right thanks guys adios hey guys i thought uh brian bird and i would jump on here after this guy's story that you just listened to and i think probably most people brian don't know the depth of what wild courage is and how much more th we are outside of just a podcast yeah most people probably just think Wild Courage is just this podcast and just these stories. But in actuality, we're much more. We send guys to retreats. We host, I think we just talked about 2,500 guys have been in this barn. Right here in Emmett, Idaho. And for around the, fires. <laughs> and for, for the listeners out there, um, it's been an incredible journey in which we have been able to hear stories from guys who've not only sat in their pain and seen others, but now they're starting to want to get help. They're going on a journey to find healing from counselors and coaches 
and is really asking us to form a partnership. Yeah, that's that's kind of what's been the greatest joy, I think, of for us is to get a partner with some of these guys because, let's face it, a lot of guys out there, blue-collar working guys, don't have insurance um, and can't afford to go to counseling because, as everyone knows, a good counselor starts at 150 bucks an hour, right? That's right. And I think one thing that the podcast has done is getting guys to be able to get to a place in their own journeys or where they're like, man, I really actually do need help. And being vulnerable and talking about my emotions and about what's going on in my life is actually, I'm finding healing in it around these fires. And a lot of us, this is great once or twice a month, but we need to go on a much deeper journey. And that includes getting help, professional help that we are we are not. Right. And the cool thing about Wild Courage now that most folks don't understand is, we're at actual nonprofit now, an official yeah. nonprofit with a board. Last year, we sat around and some of our partners said, hey, you need board members. It's time to get official. I want to get behind you guys. And today, we can say we are. Yeah, we've taken the next step in getting all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. And we have a legit board that is very well versed in their lane and bring a lot to the table, which gives us great confidence in this conversation of, look, we are much bigger, more than just a podcast. And this past year, we've got to send guys to get help and, and cover their expenses for going to counseling. We've, what, what, we've sponsored guys to go to retreat that couldn't afford to go. And there's no shame in that, right? No shame at all. And guys that have told us that before sitting around a fire, there's no way in hell they ever would have went and got help, got counseling. You know, I just remember a guy named Joe. Um, we paid for part of his cost for counseling. He said he wanted to go. He saw a counselor once a month for 12 months. And while Courage got to pay $600 of it, and Joe paid $600. We split the cost. And the results are simple touch point. Marriage saved. Kids are talking to him. He's cleaning up his mess. You know, if we took the same example and paid $1,200 counseling costs for the year for 25 men, it'd be about $30,000. Which if is we, our goal. Which is our goal. For this year. If we, if we send 50 guys to counseling and split costs, it'd be 60000 So it's pretty simple. Um, and the big, you know, 2024 ask is help us help the men. You know, we're going to change the world one healed Man, that's right. At a time, one healed man equals one healed marriage. One healed marriage gives permission for the kids to watch and see their dad put in the work that values them the most versus the job, the addiction, the other thing. That's yeah, powerful. It's it's fun to see some of these guys that are local that we've got to help and to see their lives change and to get to be a part of that and partner with them and making that happen is one of the coolest things we've ever got to do. And on top of that, um, we're starting to talk to some different rehabilitation centers and partnering with them and sending some guys that have, that need to go to rehab and the same thing, maybe they're cowboys and bloggers and outdoorsmen and, and live in rural America and, 
they have no access to that and not even finding a good fit for them. So that's part of the things that we're putting our hands to right now is to find the right fit for some of these guys to get the help that they need and to help cover the expense of that, which is, I think, again, the coolest thing we could ever get to do. Yeah, it's a total dream of ours. And, you know, we we're just talking, Jeremy, where'd you start your journey? At rehab. At rehab. Yeah. 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 What could it what could it be like if we can send fifty guys who have a desire to get on the journey of being wholehearted and healed to rehab to start their way home? Well, I, I think that there's a lot of great organizations, Brian, that um raise awareness for things. And I think our, our what we do with Wild Courage is we're not afraid of the mess. That's what we do really well. Yeah. Of sitting with guys in their pain and so we want to take the awareness a whole step further and actually get into the process of getting guys the help that they need. And again, a lot of guys can't afford to to do that. And it, it, it really bothers me that getting help is, is kind of held for the people that can afford it. And there's a, there's a whole community of men in all different walks of life out there that are in the latter of those two things that they just can't afford to go. So um, I think in full transparency too, Brian, as far as the, our nonprofit goes, none of us take a wage, no board members. We we do all of this. We all have jobs and own businesses and um, we we do all of this in the margin. And so your money will be going towards what we're actually saying it's going to go towards because the podcast, um, you know... No, nobody gets paid. Nope. We're not doing this for the money. No, no. We're doing it for the healing. Yeah. Yeah. So again, come partner with us. It's just, if you listen to the podcast, if you're a longtime listener, I mean, how many downloads did we just hit, Jeremy? Oh, uh, we just passed 50,000, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and how many countries? And surreal. What was it like? 77? 77 countries. And we say that with, with, uh, with, the most humble hearts. It's crazy. It's been a journey of learning and getting reps, as I say. And, you know, if you listen to Jeremy for a while, he's getting better and better. It's been a pleasure. Uh, oh, thanks, man. To see, to see you grow. It's still scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, you know, if we can send, partner with us, we want to send 25 guys to counseling, to the coaches. And we have lots of good partners out there. Britton Collins listening. He's one of them. We have a whole crew of people, of counselors that are great, that are um, accredited and proven. And um, we, you're going to hear some of these stories of guys who've worked with Britton in the future podcast. They're getting yeah, they have it in the past too, guys that have been on. And yeah, so thanks guys for taking the time to listen to this podcast and supporting us in all the different ways and, and subscribing and sharing and all the things that everyone tells me we're supposed to do. <laughs> Uh, on on the podcast to help spread the word of of hope. And that's the whole point of all of this. Right on. Amen. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.